0: Welcome to the Community Hope Podcast. We exist to share hope with more people in more places. For more information on this podcast or our church, please visit communityhope.org. Now stay tuned for our Sermon of the Week. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? I need you. Did those ladies not do amazing? My goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask the church, would you stand up with me? I uh, am honored to be here and Man, it is, I'm excited about God. I don't know about you, I'm excited about God. And, and here's why. I've been traveling, going on my 19th year, full-time traveling all over this world. I've had the opportunity to speak in about 16 different countries. And uh, one of the things that I've just noted noticed this last year, and, and I have friends that have traveled uh, for 15, 20, 30 years, and we've all been talking about the last year And there's just something so real and something so raw and something so new that God's doing. And and here's what it is. I just, I really believe that God is unveiling the hearts of people to see a greater depth of his love and a greater depth of who he is and what he's planning. And I just want to say thank you for for being a, 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 a church that offers hope to a community. You're living up to your name. I don't know if you know that or not. I, uh, I was telling Pastor Brad this. when I, 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 I've, I've had the opportunity to be hosted by a lot of churches. There's a lot of churches I've been invited to once. And some of them have, I've not been invited back, and some I've chosen not to go back to. It's not anything just, you know, if you don't like the meal, you don't go back to the table, amen? That's the way I feel. But reality is, is I walked into my hotel room. It, it had been a long day of travel, and I'd walked into my hotel room last night, and I was greeted by a gift basket. And I don't know who put it there, but I just, I, it, to me, as someone that is on the road all the time, it was nice to have some juice and some popcorn and there were some homemade cookies in a Ziploc bag. I don't know who made those, but evidently you, it still rains manna in your kitchen because those were godly. I, I lost 61 pounds in the last year and, and I knew I could eat those cookies because they had been prayed for. And somebody else was going to get those calories. (laughs) So I I had no problem, no guilt, no nothing. But I just, here's what it is. If I'm a visitor and I felt that welcomed and that wanted and that loved on in a hotel room when, when there was no one else there, I can't imagine how your community feels when they walk into this house. Because as strangers, can I tell you, How we greet people and how we love people and how we embrace people and how we accept people says a lot. And it's the first interaction that people have with God is their interaction with us. And so I just want to say thank you for loving on me and I'm excited. But, hey, I'm going to turn this and we're going to go in a different direction. But I'm going to ask everybody in this room to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to go to that place where decisions are made Because ultimately what God does in this place is not going to be determined by my message. It's not going to be determined by my text. It's not going to be determined by my points. It's not even going to be determined by the songs that we've already sung. What God does in your heart and in your life is going to be determined by one thing. What you allow him to do. And so all over this place, let's go to that place where decisions are made and let's cast our ballot to allow God to have His way. That no matter what what is talked about from this moment on, no matter what occurs from this moment on, we are going to set our, 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 our face towards God and allow Him to have His way. Because one of two things is going to happen here, church. One of two things. Number one, either you're going to try to have your way with God, or number two, you're going to allow God to have His way with you. But only one of those ways will allow you to walk out of this place differently. And if you're here and you're willing to say, I want God to have his way with me. I want God to speak to me. I want God to transform me. And I want to walk out of this place differently than I walked in. I want to walk out better. I want to walk out closer. I want to walk out with an encounter with God like I've never had before. And if that's you and you want God to speak directly to you this morning, then I want you to raise both hands towards heaven. And I want you to pray this very dangerous prayer. It's very simple. It's scriptural, but it works. If you're ready for God to speak, Say this with me. Say, Jesus, today is my day. Speak to me and transform me by your word. Give me eyes to see, ears to hear, and a mind and a heart that's ready, willing, and able to believe and receive every word that you would speak into my existence. I give you full permission and access to do what only you can do. But from this moment on, you have my attention. So have your way in Jesus mighty name. Everyone said amen. You may be seated in heavenly places. Pastor Brad, thank you for allowing me to come back and Man, I love you and your bride and your family. And, man, you guys have some incredibly awesome pastors. You know that? I I don't know if you know this, but you probably have the strongest pastor since Samson died. (laughs) But... The reality is I love Him. I've loved Him as long as I've known Him. I love their hearts. I love their hearts for people. I love their hearts for God. And uh, man, I'm excited to be here. Tonight, I, I want to challenge you to be here t- tonight. And I don't know what you have planned. This isn't a, 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 just a, a ploy to try to rearrange your schedule so that we have a full crowd. I really do believe that God's going to do something special tonight. I wrote a message a few weeks ago, and I was going to preach it this morning, but I felt like the Lord shifted something in my heart yesterday on the plane here and, and just kind of gave me some clear direction on what to do today. But I'm going to be preaching a message called, Who Do You Say That I Am Tonight? And it's not just about Jesus. It's about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement now that it's going to kind of funnel in. Can I tell you the Holy Spirit isn't the clown that shows up to the party and make everything fun? It's being honest. We expect the Holy Spirit to show up and do tricks and to turn our lives from a balloon into a dog or something that's something cool, right? The Holy Spirit is sent to not just get us to talk into tongues or to fall on the floor or to shake. The Holy Spirit's job was to sent to empower us, to teach us, to comfort us, to equip us to be witnesses. And I don't know if you know this, but the word witness does not mean one who can attest to something that they've experienced. A witness is... A martyr, one who used to live and no longer lives, but a new person lives. And so the Bible says that I no longer live, but Christ lives in and through me, right? The one who keeps you dead is the Holy Spirit, but makes you alive in Christ. And so you don't want to miss tonight's message. But this morning, I want to preach to you a message that that was birthed out of a prayer time. And and in reality, a lot of us preachers, we, we have to give credit most of our sermons come from prayer. Most of our sermons come from seasons where we were walking through things. I I will say it this way, at least my best sermons did not come from just a time of study. It came from a time of brokenness. It came from a time of desperation. It came through suffering. It came through trials. Because the, the only two types of messages that I can preach successfully are the ones that I've lived or the ones that I am living. And I was walking through a season a, a few years ago, and, and, I, and I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I've found out God is not, He's not afraid of us feeling this way. It's not, he's not afraid, He's not insecure that we will walk through seasons like this, but I was walking through a season where I felt like God was doing nothing. Anybody ever been there? Like you were doing everything you were told to do. You were being faithful, as faithful as you could. You were being consistent. You were giving. You were were just, you were being a good boy. You were being a good girl. You were doing everything, right? And it just felt like God was doing nothing. And I went to a time of prayer and I just, I went in and I was frustrated. I was broken. I was hurting. And I went to the Lord in prayer and my exact words were were this. God, it feels like you're doing nothing. I'm doing everything I can do, and it feels like you're doing nothing. Can I tell you, God didn't get angry with me. God wasn't like, oh, excuse me, do you know who you're talking to? The reality is, is if we thought it, He's already known it. If we feel it, He's already seen it in us. And so when I was getting real with God, God began to reveal something, and, and out came this message. I want you to turn in your Bible with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Let me ask you a question. There's a riddle that goes like this. What's more powerful and more loving than God? What's more evil than the devil? The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you will die. Let me say it again. What's more powerful and loving than, more than God? What's more evil than the devil, the poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you will die. Nothing. Nothing's more powerful, more loving than God. Nothing's more evil than the devil. The poor have nothing, the rich need nothing, and if you eat nothing, you're dead. You know, one of the most quoted scriptures in seasons of loss, like funerals especially, is Psalms chapter 23, verses 1. When we're walking through a season of loss, when we're walking through a season of mourning, when we're walking through a confusing season, we quote this scripture often. It says, the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. Do you know that a sheep does not wake up and say, what am I going to eat today? A sheep does not worry about the water that they're going to drink. They trust the shepherd. And isn't it strange that God refers to us as His sheep and we're in His flock, but yet at the same time, how many times have you woke up and said, I wonder what I'm going to do. Where's the money going to come from to pay the bills? Where, what, what am I supposed to wear? Now, I don't have to worry about this anymore, and thank you, God. I don't have to worry about, am I going to curl my hair, straighten my hair? Am I going to part it? I can wash my head and comb it all at the same time. It's awesome. But... In our life, we are so bound by the decisions that we have to make or the worry or the concerns of the decisions that we have to make. And instead of just realizing that that scripture is so proud, profound, and, and today, if you'll, if you'll just bear with me, because I'm gonna, we're going to go in a direction, and I promise you, if you, will, if you could see what I'm about to see it would it'd be rather amusing, but if you'll stick with me for the course of this message, I promise you I'm going somewhere, and I'm not going to take Scripture out of context. But you're about to look at me like a calf looks at a new gate. That. What's that? That Scripture is profound because it's giving us the keys that will unlock us from the chains of worry and fret and fear and concern. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing, right? And we look at this and we, 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 we as we begin to unpack, as we begun, begin to study this, we look at it and we say, well, we don't lack anything. God provides everything, right? But the term, if you just break it down in the simplest text, it says that we lack something. God is speaking truth. He's saying you lack something. And the only thing that you're lacking in this, it can only be found in me. And so if we just take the scripture, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Did you know that you woke up this morning and you're lacking something? Something's missing in your life and it's called nothing. And you're sitting there going, well, that that sounds silly. No, 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 you don't understand that God's, one of the greatest gifts that God gave you was the gift of nothing. Let, let me explain. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read the first 12, cha- 12 verses of this verse, of this chapter. Luke 24, 1 through 12. It says this: On the first day of the week, very early in the morning. The women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but, they found, but when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about these things, suddenly two men, clothed in, whose clothes seemed like they gleamed like lightning, stood besides them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how He told you while He was with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered His words. When they had come back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to the, all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna. It was Mary, the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. One of the definitions of nothing is nonsense. It means no sense, no wisdom, no understanding. Their words seemed like nothing. But Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what has happened. Father, I ask for just the next few moments that you lend me your voice. God, this congregation and your beloved do not need my opinion, nor do they need my advice, but what they need is a word from you. And so, Lord, I ask for clarity of heart, clarity of mind, and clarity of speech to to get this word out from inside of me in such a way that it impacts everyone that hears it. So, Holy Spirit, I need your help. Father, would you speak in Jesus' name? Everyone said, Amen. amen. There's a lot that's going on in this scripture But I I want you to understand something, and this is where that look starts happening. Did you know that since Jesus has has come into this earth, he's brought nothing but confusion? The Bible says that he is not the author of confusion, but the author of our faith, right? Right? We know who the author of confusion is. That's Satan, right? But but have you ever noticed that when Jesus, from from before he was even on the earth, just a promise to be released on the earth, that he has brought nothing but confusion? Let me explain this. A 14-year-old little girl, now I don't know if you, my father's in the house that have daughters, but imagine your 14-year-old little girl coming to you and saying, Hey, uh, Dad, I'm pregnant and it's God's Mhm. Well, you tell this Mr. God, I'm about to die. He's about to die and I'm about to go to prison. Right? Dad, that wasn't revelation to dad. That was what? Imagine the confusion of this 14-year-old little girl that when this angel comes, number one, there's this angel, so that's a little kind of freaky in the first place. And so this angel says, hey, listen, you're going to have a son and and, and he's going to be great and he's going to rule over the kingdom of his father David and his kingdom will never end. Imagine the confusion of this 14-year-old little girl going, excuse me, I know what it takes to get pregnant, not done it, engaged, but not done it. How's this going to be? God says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Can I tell you the first part of any process to God's plan being accomplished in your life is the Holy Spirit has got to come upon your life. Without the Holy Spirit, God's plan will never come to pass in your life. And we look at it like we just need the tongues. Let me explain something. He's the key that opens up the door in our heart to let Jesus in. So... The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you so that the one that's going to come upon you will be or the, the power of the most high will overshadow you so that the one that's going to be on the inside of you will be the son of God. Okay, just as you said, let it be unto me. So she goes and imagine the confusion that she brings to her fiancé. This Now, we think of Joseph, right? Now, I was, just, I was just in Washington, D.C. I went to the uh, Museum of the Bible. If you've never been there, it's fantastic. You've got to go check it out. But did you know that Jesus and his father were carpenters? Like that. But we look at it like he carved wood. Do you know that they didn't mostly carve wood? They played with rocks like Brad does. Did you know the manger wasn't little like carving, put together, little rocking chair? It was rock carved by hand. So let me explain something. Your picture of Jesus being this little feeble, weak person, he was not. He had guns. He was strong. He had a firm handshake. He had calluses on his hands. Right? So she goes to this, this kid that she's engaged to named Joseph, who probably was pretty strong. He was a man's man and says, uh, Joseph, I know we're supposed to be getting married, but I'm pregnant. According to law, he could have stoned her. Reality was is he had stone right there. He could have put her to death. He could have called for her, her sentence, but he didn't. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of character. He was in love with Mary and even in, this, in, in spite of his confusion, he looked at her and he, and he thought, I'll just, I'll just dismiss her. We'll do it quietly. Say it was me. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, listen, it's exactly, it's exactly as she said it is. She is pregnant and it is God's. Imagine, like, like how am I going to compare to be God's Step's father. Imagine as she starts growing and this baby comes forth, imagine the confusion of all of a sudden a new star appears in the sky. Imagine the confusion that when these people had come, all of a sudden angels are ascending and descending, and there's worship going on. Imagine that these men who brought sp- the spices. Imagine the confusion of Mary and Joseph as they're sitting there, and people are coming bringing gifts, and nobody told them to. They just showed up to their house. Imagine the confusion that when Jesus he began to grow up, they went to back to 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 show themselves to basically to 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 do the their duties and Jesus is a part of this crowd and all of a sudden they go to return home and and Jesus isn't there, he gets lost, Mary's mad, she's upset, she's looking for her son, it's been three days, they find Jesus in the courtyard teaching, imagine the confusion of men that had studied scripture for, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They, they have, they're, they're the philosophers. They, they speak multiple languages. Imagine the confusion when they're sitting there in this synagogue and they're reading the scriptures. All of a sudden, a 12-year-old boy who has no formal experience, no formal education in these things, open up the scroll and speaks with one who has understanding. Imagine the confusion when they're sitting there going, who is this prodigy? Because even in their minds, it said, he spoke as one who understood it. Imagine the confusion when Jesus is there. His, his ministry really hasn't started, but He gets out of the water and heaven opens up and a, a, the Holy Spirit descends in, form, in the form of a dove and rests upon Him and heaven shouts, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Imagine the confusion that Jesus goes to this wedding and His mom comes up to Him and says, hey Jesus, uh, we have a problem. Isn't it amazing that most moms, even if it's not your problem, you take it on as your own problem? It wasn't her and her family's wedding. She was just attending, but they ran out of wine. We got to do something about it, right? Hey, Jesus, I need you to, they're out of wine. And I love Jesus's response. Uh, Don't you know I've got to be about my father's business? I love the response of this mama. She goes to the servants of the house and says, just do whatever he says. Totally dismisses Jesus saying, I'm not going to do this. This isn't my time. Dismisses it and says, just do whatever he says. Because you know what I found out? I'm the product of a praying mama. Mamas can get some things done. They can move heaven. They don't take no for an answer. Okay, And so mama just said, hey, just do whatever he says. All of a sudden these servants come and he says, just go get me these great big jars, these great big jugs, these great big barrels of water. Jesus comes, he dips this cup into it and he says, now take this to the the house, the, the manager of the house. He takes it to the manager of the house. Imagine the confusion of the manager of the house as he drinks it. And he goes, wait a second. Most people bring out the good stuff at first and the bad stuff at the end It's at the end of the wedding, and this is the best stuff. This is the best I've ever had. I've never tasted anything like this. Imagine the confusion when all of a sudden Jesus walks in and and. He's walking through a crowd of about 7,500 people and people are pushing in on him. And all of a sudden, a woman thinks to herself, if all I do is touch him, I will be cured of whatever disease I had. And she reaches through the crowd and touches him. And immediately her bleeding that had been happening for 12 years stopped. Imagine the confusion that that when the crowd was there, Jesus stops and he said, who touched me? Imagine the confusion of the disciples when they looked around and said, well, uh, it was us. I don't know if you know this, but the disciples were the secret service of Jesus. They didn't even let children come and touch him. And so they were immediately surrounding Jesus like the little protective custody about like the bodyguards of God, right? They're surrounding him, not letting kids touch him. And all of a sudden, this woman reaches through, touches the hem of his garment. She gets cured. Jesus says, who touched me? Who's immediately around him? The disciples. Here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going with this. The ones that should have been touching him didn't touch him. And they said, there, there's so many people around here. There's a lot of people bumping into you. He says, I'm not talking about somebody bumped into me. I'm, somebody, I'm talking about somebody reached into the heart of God and touched his heart and virtue and power left them, And they're no longer the same. They're different. Something happened just now. And the problem is, is you're too busy trying to stop everybody from touching me that you don't even touch me yourself. And all of a sudden... This woman, knowing she couldn't hide it, comes up and says, it was me. Now, here's where the confusion begins to build. Watch this. This was a woman who was bleeding. And so according to Jewish law, if a person was bleeding or they had an order of blood issues, they had to scream that they were unclean. And because if anybody else touched them, they would, that person that touched them would be unclean. And they would have to go outside of the city for seven days. And so what would happen is a person that was unclean, a person that had issues would scream, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. And that way people stayed away from her. But here's where it gets good. How does someone that's unclean, because up to this point when an unclean person touches a clean person, the clean person becomes unclean. But here's where things shifted. How does an unclean person touch a clean person and a clean person cleans the unclean person? You know the greatest miracle that God's ever done is you. You ready for this? I was doing a funeral, not a funeral that I was proud of. It was my niece who died from cancer. And I was sitting there wanting to just mourn as an uncle, not be a preacher. I wasn't looking for some fascinating word. I wasn't looking for some deep revelation. I was just hurting. And I said, God, I said, I said, I don't understand this scripture. It says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, then it just alone sets. It remains a seed. But it becomes something greater when it passes. And I'm like, God, I don't understand why she had to pass. I don't understand why people die. I don't understand why bad things happen to good people and all of a sudden the Lord spoke to me and he said these words he says do you know why I didn't make you out of gold do you know why I didn't make you out of silver or something like a diamond I said no he said gold is, 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 is valuable and silver is precious and diamonds glisten he said but dirt's the only thing that I can plant a seed in and watch it grow he said Amanda was good dirt I gave an altar call that day. Over 700 kids gave their life to Jesus. And I stood there weeping because she was good dirt. Here's what the miracle is, and this is where I'm going. Imagine the confusion. How do you clean dirt? It wasn't the blood that was making her unclean. It was that she was dirty because she's made out of dirt. And God came to clean dirt. God came to purify dirt and to us as scientists and, and trying to understand and wrap our minds around what God is doing and why God did it. We don't understand that God came so that the unclean can touch him. And he, the unclean don't cause the clean to get dirty, but when they touch the clean, the clean causes the unclean to get clean. And they're forever changed. He causes our issues to stop. He causes our bleeding to stop. He causes our pain to disappear. He causes our hearts to heal. He causes sickness to go away. And all we have to do is touch him. Imagine the confusion. See, there was a man that came up to Jesus right before that. And this is where I'm going. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Excuse me, sir, my daughter, she's sick. Can you please just go home with me? And I just know if you lay your hands on her, if you're just there, she will be healed. And so they're going. And all of a sudden, this woman stops. Jesus as they're walking to this man's house and Jesus stops and he said who touched me and all of a sudden this woman knowing that she couldn't hide what had happened to her she no longer had to walk around screaming that she was unclean she no longer so she could press through the crowd and not get anybody dirty because her bleeding had stopped and she said it was I and I love his response here he says daughter your faith has healed you go and sin no more and all of a sudden this, this man that's going, excuse me, Jesus, imagine the confusion. Like, Jesus, I'm so glad that you healed her, but don't forget my daughter. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And all of a sudden, they're going, and I don't know how many steps. I don't know how many miles, but they're en route, and all of a sudden, somebody comes to this man and says, excuse me, sir, your daughter's died. What do you mean she died? She, she just passed. I don't know if they could just see the house. I don't know how far they were from the house, but imagine the confusion of this father going, if Jesus would not have stopped. If Jesus would have been more concerned about my daughter instead of that daughter, my daughter would probably be alive. And I love Jesus' response. He says, only believe. And they keep on going. And he can hear as they're getting closer to the house, Imagine this hurting father, this desperate father, this mourning father. As they get to the house, they can hear people weeping. And Jesus looks at him and he says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. Only believe. And as they get to the house, Jesus says, I need everybody on the inside out. I need you out. Because God has to get doubt out. Did you know that Merriam-Webster was an incredible man of God? The guy that wrote the dictionary? The very first translation of the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, every word was defined by two to three scriptures because out of the mouth of two to three witnesses, every fact will be proven. So he defined every word we know in our human language or in our English language right now. He defined by scripture. That's pretty cool, right? But when he defined the word doubt, the word doubt does not mean I just have unbelief. The word doubt meant absence of God. And so when we doubt, what we're doing is we're trying to figure it out on our own. And so therefore, we ask God to wait outside and we invite our confusion in. And so Jesus had to get the doubt out, bring God in. Why? Because God doesn't work in the midst of doubt. God kicks doubt out. God shows up. So all of a sudden, he kicks it out. And imagine the confusion of the doctor when the doctor goes, Excuse me, sir, uh, what are you doing? And he says, She's not dead. She's only asleep. Uh, sir, I don't know where you went to medical school, but I've went to medical school for eight years. I know how to read a heartbeat. I'm telling you, she is dead. She is growing stiff. She's growing cold. She's growing blue. She's even starting to stinketh. And Jesus says, looks at the dad and says, "Only believe." And they walk in, and all of a sudden, Talithicumi. Little girl come forth and all of a sudden she breathes and she walks. wakes up and he brings her out. Imagine the confusion of the doctor going, uh, get me a new stethoscope. <laughs> she was dead. I didn't hear her heartbeat. Imagine the confusion of the people that were mourning her death, already making, they were starting to carve her, her, her gravestone. They were already starting to dig her hole. They were already starting to make the funeral procession Imagine the confusion of people. See, Jesus, ever since he stepped foot on this earth, has brought confusion. But watch this. It begins to intensify. He's walking with disciples, and he starts saying this. Unless the man is betrayed, unless he's turned over to the hands of sinners and be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Imagine the confusion when Peter looks at him and he says, this isn't going to happen. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You have your plans ahead of you. You have not the idea and the plans of God. Imagine the confusion when when they start going and all of a sudden as one Sunday they they walk into or one Friday, they walk into the city and they're screaming Hosanna and the next one they're screaming crucify. Imagine the confusion of the disciples going, wait a second, all he's doing is talking about love and how he wants to help people and he's healing people. And yet these people want to kill him. Imagine the confusion of of the religious. They're sitting there going, this is not the Messiah because he's not overthrowing the rule of the Roman government. See, there's this confusion, but it intensifies even more. And here's where we're going. Watch this. All of a sudden, they're in the garden, and Jesus starts talking crazy. And he says, they're at the table at the upper room, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And then all of a sudden, he says, do as what's already in your heart to do. And Judas gets up, and then all of a sudden, he looks at Peter and he looks at the rest of the table and he says one of you is going to deny me before the rooster crows three times or two times you're going to disown me three times and Peter says even if I have to die for you I will never deny you isn't it funny we're willing to die for him but we're not willing to live for him and Jesus goes to this garden, Pastor Brad and he's praying and all of a sudden this lynch mob comes and they arrest Jesus and Peter, trying to protect Jesus, grabs a sword, and he cuts off the ear of the man who is arresting Jesus. Imagine the confusion of this man, Pastor Brad. His ear is off, his head is bleeding, and Jesus picks it up and puts it back on. And all of a sudden, the man still has crusty blood on his ear, but his ear is there. It's no longer in pain. It's no longer bleeding. And he's like, okay, wait a second. Am I supposed to arrest him still? They arrest him. Imagine the confusion. These, the disciples actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the son of God. Imagine their confusion when they see Jesus led to the temple after being condemned to death, and he's led to the city square. He's stripped naked, and they begin to beat him. And they see God's blood beginning to pour, and they see God's flesh being torn open. How does God bleed? How does God, God is screaming, God is in pain. How is God in pain? and then they patrol him up and he has this purple this pu- purple robe and this crown of thorns upon his brow and they condemn him and all of a sudden they put this beam on him and they're leading him through the streets and Jesus is tripping trying to carry this number one he's not just carrying a beam that, it's not that he can't carry the beam the beam's too heavy he had carried a lot of beams but he's carrying the weight of rejection he's carrying the weight of depression he's carrying the weight of all these things he's carrying it up to that hill to put it to death and all of a sudden, he fumbles this, this, this beam, and another man comes. Do you know the person, the first person that got the blood of Jesus on him was not a thief on the cross, but a man willing to help carry the cross? Whew. They get up. Imagine, God's not strong enough to carry his own cross, and he gets up to the, up to the Mount of Golgotha, and they begin to nail. How does God get nailed to a cross? And then, all of a sudden, they crucify him. And Jesus says, I thirst. You know what's so crazy? And I'm going to go in a little bit of description here because you have to understand the price that Jesus paid. See, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They perfected it. They found a way to make a man desire death. To despise his own soul and life that he would cry out for death. And so one of the ways that they would do that is this great big beam. They would begin to get these knives and they would begin to strike against the grain, causing the thorns, to the, 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 the grains of the, the, of the wood to flare like thorns. And they would strike down. And so the crucifixion was they would literally droop a man, with perfect distance, they would nail his feet and then his hands. And it wasn't the pain that caused the, the person being crucified to die. It was suffocation. Because what would happen is they would drip down, their arms would extend, and it would cause their lungs to not be able to breathe air, and so therefore they would suffocate. But what they do is they would have to push off of the nails to their feet to lift up to catch a breath. And while doing that, those knives like daggers of wood would drill themselves into their flesh, into their muscle. And so they would have to literally push up against those things, stabbing them in the back to just breathe. Now, here's what's insane. Do you know that Jesus said seven things while he was dying on the cross? And one of them was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you know that Jesus, it was one thing to allow a man to beat you. It's another thing when you put yourself through that kind of pain in order to forgive people. Do you know that he exhausted that breath on me? He exhausted that breath on you. He did it to himself so that we could be sitting in this church to this day. But then all of a sudden, his very last breath, he lifts up. It collapses under the pain. And he looks up towards heaven and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last and he was dead. Now, I don't know if you know this. But what they would do is they would come and break the legs of the crucified. That way they couldn't pick themselves up to catch a breath. And so, therefore, they would suffocate quicker. It would expedite the dying process. But when they broke the legs of one thief, and then they broke the legs of the other thief, and they went to break the legs of Jesus, he was already dead. They had never seen anyone die this quickly. Do you ever wonder why Jesus died so quickly? So they stuck a spear through his side and hit his punctured his heart, and his blood and water flowed, meaning that the physical element of the heart was broken. Now, this is where it gets really good. You ready for this? Do you remember when the thief said, He said, If you are the Son of God, then take yourself off this cross and deliver us also. And the other thief looked at him and he says, Have you no fear of God? He says, We are rightfully deserving of this death. What has this man done? He is not deserving of this death, but he took the cross of the worst criminal on the face of the earth. And all of a sudden he looks at Jesus and he does not recognize him as a condemned. He doesn't look at him as a crucified. He looks at him as king and he says, he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus looks at him and he says these words. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The reason that Jesus had to die first was because if he didn't die first and that thief died first, he would not be able to go to heaven. Why? Because the price had not been paid. And so therefore the first person saved was a thief on the cross. Why? Because he recognized Jesus on the cross. He recognized him as savior he recognized him as king and so therefore Jesus kept his word to a criminal and we think that God will not forgive us that's how good our God is And in spite of our confusion, see, God was not here to bring us into confusion, but to bring us out of confusion. But in order for him to bring us out of confusion, he had to normalize our way of thinking. And here's what I mean. God's normal is not our normal. And he had to make our normal become his normal. That's where unclean things touch clean things and they become clean. It's when sinners become saved. It's when the sick become healed. It's when the lost become found. It's when the blind become, receive sight. It's when the deaf hear, receive their hearing. It's when the lame walk. He came to normalize our way of thinking. He didn't come to, to, to confuse us. He came to bring clarity. Now, here's what I mean. Imagine the confusion when these women see Jesus died. How does God die? And they go to this tomb because... It's as close to Jesus as they can get. For the last few years, they didn't eat what they want. They didn't go where they want. They went where Jesus wanted. And they were just going to where Jesus was. And so they got up early and they got some spices. And they were going to the tomb and it was somewhat dark. And as they started their way to the tomb, imagine the confusion that filled their heart where they were like, I can't believe he's gone. I can't believe Jesus is dead. What are we going to do now? And as they arrived at to the tomb, the stone had been removed. Now their confusion intensifies as they begin to think. Now what did they do? It wasn't good enough that they took Jesus and killed him. But what have they done with him now? Have they hidden him so that we can't even go visit him? And they rush in, and there is not Jesus. But as they're looking around wondering what had happened, there's two angels that are, that are glowing because they, are in, they had just stepped out of the glory of God. And they're standing there, and all of a sudden these women fall to their knees. And they, I love these angels. They said these words. They said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Isn't it funny that we're still looking for life in dead places and in dead things? I love that life that day was given a name. It was given a face. It was given a character. It says, who you're looking for. Life is not here. He has risen. Life is not dead. Life is aroused. Life is not in a tomb. Life is not in a cave. Life has been freed. All of a sudden, these women are excited. And I love what they said. Did you not remember what he said? Have you forgotten? You know what I found out? We forget often the things that God promises us because of what we're going through and how we feel. We forgot that this was the third day. Have we forgotten that He said that He would raise us from the dead? Have we forgotten? All of a sudden, it stirred up. They began to remember. They got so excited, they ran to the disciples. The disciples are there, and they didn't believe Him. Isn't it funny, the ones that should have believed him the most didn't believe him, but it aroused Peter, and he ran to the tomb, and he's sitting there, and he's looking, and he's, he's wondering what had happened. And that's where our story begins to unfold. See, one of my greatest fears as a child was that on Christmas morning, I would wake up, with such high expectation of the gifts, it would be found under the tree for me. But instead, only to find that my behavior for, my past, for the past year was re- rewarded with coal. Or even worse, nothing would be under the tree for me. I constantly was reminded I better be good because Santa was watching and making a list. And if I was not good enough, I would be on the naughty list. And Santa would bring me coal for Christmas. You remember those lies? For every millennial, let me tell you what that means. Santa's taking your phone chargers. I found myself cringing under the melody of the song, I'm getting nothing for Christmas. As the lyrics echoed through my head, I would be reminded of all the wrong things that I had done. I'm getting nothing for Christmas. Mommy and Daddy are mad. I'm getting nothing for Christmas because I ain't been nothing but bad. It seemed to perfectly describe my habitual behavior with such a harsh reality of what I could anticipate receiving for Christmas that year. The fact was that it wasn't I tried to be bad, but that type of behavior just seemed to come so natural for me. And no matter how hard I tried, I always uh, seemed to fall short of being good enough and then Christmas day would then fast approach and no matter how bad I had been that year, I always found gifts of grace under the tree for me that turned my anticipation of of disappointment into delight as I tore away the the, the colorful wrapping paper to find each and every present that I so desperately desired was received. You know what I found out? was those gifts that were found under that tree were not based on who I was, it was based on who my father was. Whew. Do you know how many times we walk into church and the Holy Spirit spent, while you were resting, he does not sleep nor slumber, and he literally decorated this altar full of gifts placed it under the tree of grace for us and too often because of a pot roast that might burn a football game that's almost over or the preacher just preached too long we don't go to the altar to get our gifts of grace we walk out wondering God why aren't you doing anything in my life and the Holy Spirit saying because you didn't go to the altar today and get the gift that I hand wrote for you and nobody's going to deliver it to you I already sent it through my son I already sent it through my Holy Spirit but the problem was you're too busy thinking I'm going Gonna deliver it to you. Why don't you come get it? See what you don't understand is the gift of nothing. See the very thing that I love and am grateful for today is explained by something that I once feared: getting nothing. Let me further explain. Did you know that God created nothing? Did you know that God created it? Let me give you scripture. God created everything through him and nothing was created except by him. Did you know nothing is actually something tangible? See, what is the greatest gift that you've ever received? What made it the greatest gift? You needed it, you desired it, you desperately wanted it. Its purpose, its usefulness, the enjoyment that it brought. Everyone else had it and no, or no one else had it. See, we sometimes base our value of the gift that we received on our desire for it, but what if I was to say one of the greatest gifts that that we could ever receive is a direct byproduct of the greatest gift given to us is explained in John chapter 3, verses 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, this gift being something that would confuse us and we would ultimately complain about if it was given to us to unwrap. I would guarantee that you would look at me funny when holding this gift in your hands. But when this truth of when the truth of this gift Uh, But the truth of this gift does not need to be wrapped or unwrapped. The gift simply needs to be recognized and embraced because what we do not recognize, we will never acknowledge. But once we recognize the value of this gift, you you will do everything in your power to never lose it. What is this gift I'm talking about? It's the gift of nothing. See, nothing as a gift would seem meaningless, cruel, humiliating, discouraging, confusing, frustrating, and even instigating to receive. But what if I was to say that the greatest gift that you could ever receive is the gift of nothing? Let me define the word by Merriam-Webster of nothing. Nothing means not anything, no single thing, no thing, of no value, not at all, none of anything, not a bit. Here's my favorite one, absence of attendance. I, I, I looked at my bride one day, and I said, Baby girl, what would you do if I took you out to a nice restaurant, we got dressed up, and we, got down, we sat down as candlelight, and all of a sudden I pulled out this little gift with a bow on it, beautifully wrapped, and I set it right on your plate. She said, I'd open it. I said, but I wouldn't let you open it until dinner was done. I said, I would guarantee that you would probably look at me and say, I love you so much. I'm so blessed to have you as my husband. You are so generous. You are so kind. You are so loving. You would just start filling the air with all these things. I said, you would eat fast. You would bypass any type of appetizer. You would, when they came to take your drink order, you would order your food. You would not order dessert. As soon as you were done, you'd grab that gift and say, I'm done eating. And you would start opening it. You wouldn't be worried about saving the bow. You would rip that wrapping paper open. and you would grab it, and all of a sudden, you would realize that there was a box inside of there, and all of a sudden, you took the lid off the box, and you reached in, and there was this velvety box inside, and you're like, oh, every gift begins, every kiss begins with K. He went to Jared's. I said, I could imagine you, as you open up that box, I I got you nothing. I said, you would look at me and all of a sudden be like, you're the biggest jerk. That is not even funny. You're sleeping on the couch tonight. I said, isn't it funny sometimes that when we don't get what we think we're going to get, it's instantly the person that gave us what we thought we were going to get or what we thought we deserved is instantly the bad guy. I said, but baby girl, what if I was to tell you that would be the greatest gift that I could ever give you? She said, I'd call you a liar. I said, well, wait. So the ultimate question must be answered is nothing actually something? I believe that nothing is actually something. I believe it, is a truly, it truly is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us as his children until nothing is taken away it is hard to comprehend how valuable nothing really is. See, nothing is one of the most precious commodities that, health can, uh, that wealth cannot buy, wisdom cannot understand, and human ability cannot repair. And without nothing, did you know the world would collapse? Did you know your world would collapse without nothing? Job chapter 26, verse 7, he stretches, the north out, uh, he stretches out the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. So our world is dangling on nothing. It is the limb that our worlds hang upon. Have you ever thanked God for nothing? You ever asked God for nothing? You're about to. What if nothing is wrong at home? What if the doctor finds nothing wrong with you or someone that you love? What if you have nothing discouraging you? Nothing to be insecure about. Nothing to be disappointed about. What if you have nothing troubling you? Nothing to be sad about. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to be depressed about. What if you're afraid of nothing? What if you're angry about nothing? What if you're bound by nothing? What if you have you're addicted to nothing? What if you have nothing hurting? But nothing can instantly become something. Here's what I mean. What if something is wrong at home? What if the doctors find something wrong with you or someone that you love? What if something is discouraging you, something insecure about, something to be disappointed about, something troubling you? What if something is making you sad, something making you worry? What if you're depressed about something? What if you're afraid of something? What if you're angry about something? What if you're bound by something? What if you're addicted to something? What if something is hurting? See, so truly we have nothing to lose, but once we lose it, it's hard to get back. I looked at my bride and I said, it looks like nothing. But you know what's not in their Divorce papers. You know what's not in there? An adulterous affair. The greatest thing that I can give you is nothing. You know why? Because when I stood on that altar, I gave my life to God. And by giving my life to God, he took all the things that would have caused me to give you a gift that would destroy your life. He took them away. See, what happened in that prayer time was this, Pastor Brad. I went to the Lord and I was angry. I was saying, God, it feels like you're doing nothing. And he says, you're right. I've been doing nothing for a long time. You don't understand this, Jamie. But remember back just 22 years ago when you were addicted to drugs, when you had a 357 pointed to your head because of depression and discouragement, when you were an alcoholic, all those chains, all that fear, all that bondage, you walked into church and you didn't realize that I had a whole lot of nothing in front of you, but you had a whole lot of something inside of you And he said in that day, it wasn't the message. It wasn't the song that came up that you came up to the altar to receive. He said, you came up to the altar to receive me. And he said, and I took all the something away. I took all the depression. I took away all the addiction. I took away all this sadness. I took away all the pain. I took away all the issues and I took it away and I made it nothing. I've been doing nothing before you were ever born. I've been doing nothing for a whole long time. And he says, and I'm good at doing nothing. And I looked at him. with Tears running down my face in my altar room. And I said, God, thank you for nothing. Because if he wouldn't have created nothing in my heart, I would not be standing with a microphone screaming at you today. I would probably be seven feet down in the ground. Somebody would have dug a little deeper for me. I would have been in a prison. I would have been in a recovery center. I would have been somewhere besides in church. But it was because he did nothing. It was because he pushed against the grain to say, Father, forgive him. See, the world may look at me and say I'm worthless. The world may look at me and say I'm not much. The world may have thrown me away and said I was good for nothing. But can I tell you, he takes nothing and makes something out of it. So the gift of nothing seems like wordplay. But in reality, it's not that at all. However, all as this further truly uh, further unfolds, our eyes will be made open to this greater understanding of why Jesus came and what he came with. See, Jesus was sent as a gift from the father to mankind to be our savior, our healer and our deliverer. See, we think of deliver. When was the last time you ordered a pizza and they took your kid? I've tried. Don't work. What is the job of the deliverer to take or to bring? See, we think that God's going to come and take our depression, not bring you the key to walk out of the cell called depression. Jesus came to deliver hope and deliver love and to deliver forgiveness. But can I tell you, the one that keeps us bound is our unwillingness to go up to the tree and get our gifts. See, here's what he came to deliver with. And I've got to close this quickly. See... His life began in a borrowed manger. His life ended being nailed to a borrowed cross, and he was buried in and resurrected from a borrowed tomb. The scripture declares it throughout the scriptures and throughout the gospels that Jesus came with nothing. He lived with nothing, and ultimately he died and left nothing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. See, that day those women went looking for a body, but what they were originally searching for was not there. They were looking for the living amongst the dead. They were looking for life in dead places and in dead things. They found nothing in the tomb. However, what they found for, uh, forever changed their lives and our lives. The father gave us the gift of nothing and it was delivered by Jesus. Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight. It says, who being, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing taking on the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself, even himself, being found obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, nothing is expensive, and it was paid for on the cross, and then wrapped in the tomb. Nothing was there. The cross was simply the tool. See, a lot of people worship the cross. A lot of people worship the cross, but let me tell you the truth. The cross didn't save anyone. The, di- the person who died on the cross Did. The cross is nothing more than the tool that God used to to open up the hand of hell that was gripped around our lives. See, the purpose, the purpose of the cross was to rescue mankind. The product of the cross was the restoration of mankind. The purpose of the resurrection, though, have you ever asked yourself about that? I know it's not Easter. We're not supposed to talk about resurrection until Easter. But you ever asked what was the purpose of resurrection? See, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. And without the resurrection, there's no Holy Spirit. He said, unless I go away. You don't understand what launched the Holy Spirit into the earth. Was Jesus rising from the dead. Watch this. And you guys can start playing. See, the purpose of the resurrection was not to rescue Jesus from death. Or even to release him from the grave. But instead, to reveal the restoration of all mankind. I don't know if you know this church. But did you know that Jesus did not need the stone to be removed to get out? Read through the scriptures afterwards. It says that they were in a room and the doors were locked and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. He can walk through walls, can't he? I don't think you understand the depth of what I'm about to say. Jesus did not need the stone to be removed to get out. He needed the stone to be removed so that we could get in. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens up that door, I will come in and dine with you. But can I tell you something? Jesus doesn't just want to come in and live in your kitchen or live in your living room of your heart. Jesus wants to come in so that he can bring you out of the cage you called your body and your life and bring you into life that is worth living. Jesus moved the stone so that we could get in and find what? What was in the tomb? I'm glad you asked. See, it was filled with nothing, absolutely nothing. Remember, nothing means absence of attendance. Nothing was in that tomb that could stop us any further from becoming who God created us to be sons and daughters. There was no regret, there was no shame, there was no sickness, there was no past, there was no failures, there was no mistakes, there was no behavior, there was no sin. The price had been paid in full so that the gift of nothing could be left for all men to find. And that is what the angels were truly stating. What you're looking for is not here. There's nothing here of life. But the life you're looking for, the life you'd long for is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Find Him and you will find what you desire. But from now on, nothing can stop you. See, we thank God for His gift of nothing. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, Having nothing yet possessing everything. I love, I don't know if you know this prophet, but I love this prophet by the name of Winnie the Pooh. One of his prophecies is this, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. So today and for all eternity I am extremely grateful for this gift of nothing that God has given to me and I'm here to tell you because of the gift of nothing no thing can separate us from the love of God that he has for us. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. So what do you think? With God on our side like this how can we lose if God does not hesitate to put everything on the line for us embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son is there anything that he would not do gladly and freely to do for us and who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen who would dare even point a finger the one who died for us who has been raised to life for us is now in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us do you think that anyone is is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us There is no way, not trouble, not hardships, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying, threats, not backstabbing, not anything, not even the worst of sins listed in scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. And I'm absolutely convinced, church. Are you absolutely convinced today that nothing can separate us from God? I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, absolutely nothing living, nothing dead, nothing angelic, nothing demonic, nothing today, nothing tomorrow, nothing high, nothing low, nothing thinkable and nothing unthinkable. Absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love for us because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. No, no drug. No past decision, no regret, no mistake, no shame, no sickness, no disease, no addiction, no no depression, no stronghold, no insecurity, no doubt, no anger, no fear, no chain, no pain, no person, no distance, no deception, no rejection, no thing, no one. Absolutely nothing can get between us and God. Yes, yeah. So let me ask you a question again: If the Lord is our shepherd. Why are we going without nothing in our lives? If you were impacted by this sermon or if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Community Hope on Facebook and Instagram or at our website, communityhope.org. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next week.